Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, we are in a sermon series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, in fact, we will be in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, this year. And so uh, we're going slowly through it, learning what God has to say to us. Um, while you're turning there, I want to update you on something. We had made it, uh, plans to have a midweek study through the book of Habakkuk, um, which would uh, really give us an understanding, how do I live out my faith during difficult times? And so we were going to walk through that and study it. Due to circumstances, we had to delay it. And I am uh, excited to tell you, though with some, um, with some cautions, that we are going to start that class, that Wednesday night class, beginning February the 10th. Uh, you'll be able to come uh, if you register. So pre-registration is going to be required. Um, and we're going to have to limit the amount of people that can come in person so that we can do some distancing for that class. Um, in addition to that, we will live stream it. And so if you can't make it, you can join in. It'll be recorded. You can watch it later um, as well. And so uh, we do uh, would ask that you would consider, if you're able, maybe helping with some of the kids programming in the back during that class. But if you're like, I can't do it during that class, we could also use um, some volunteers uh, during the week. And so if you have time available, they're going to start a women's Bible study on, um, on Wednesday mornings where moms have the ability to come and study uh, and their kids are going to be taught as well. And we could use some help um, in that as well. So just see Jody if you're up for volunteering with that. Look on the website for the announcement of the class starting and registration opening um, as well. So we look forward to that. Let's pray this morning and we will get into uh, the sermon. Father, we thank you for uh, your presence with us. We thank you, God, that um, you've given us your word and you speak clearly to us through it. As we open it, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in middle school, I was a really big fan of NBA basketball. Um, and like many middle schoolers, I was convinced that's where I was headed. Uh, and so I watched it. I loved everything about it, the showmanship, the game. It was way better back then. Uh, no emails. It just was. Um, better basketball, better to watch. And so I had the posters on my wall. I had the basketball cards. Um, I would watch the games with my friends. We'd go to the park in the evening pretending we were players. I mean, we just loved basketball, NBA basketball. So as an eighth grader, uh, when I got tickets to Zoe's summer charity basketball game, Zoe's summer groove charity basketball game, I was pumped. Zoe, I'm dating myself a little bit, is Alonzo Mourning. He was a star player on the Miami Heat, which is where I grew up, and uh, I was so pumped that I got tickets. Not only that, because all the star players would come uh, to this game. And so, you'd, I mean, Shaquille O'Neal was going to be there, Allen Iverson, and my favorite player at the time, Penny Hardaway. I was a big Penny Hardaway fan, and I was so excited because I was going to get to go and watch him in person at a charity game. It was going to be fun. And then our tickets were all the way over by the side where the players come through the tunnel, and, man, I was so pumped. And so come time for the players to come out, we all got over there, and we reached our hands, and we were praying that we would get a high five. And Tim Hardaway right away gives us a high five, and we're like, that's awesome. And then Shaquille O'Neal gives us an arm five right because his height like and just our arms are like this after he's done and and then finally my favorite player comes I see him coming Penny Hardaway's walking out and sure enough he gives us all high fives as he's running out and I thought I can remember stand, sitting there maybe you've been somewhere similar and I looked at my hand and I thought everything is different now I will never wash this hand ever again right I loved everything about NBA basketball and realized quickly that, man, we had elevated these athletes as I grew older to this untouchable level in our culture. 
They, I mean, they were the wealthiest. They are the wealthiest. The most influential oftentimes have the biggest egos and get off the hook for all kinds of things because we love our sports and we elevate it. And it began to kind of grieve me a little bit, right, as I got older and got kids who wanted to follow these athletes because I thought, man, this is such a, a, an industry where we've elevated them to where they, they don't have to be humble in any circumstance. So I was really pleasantly surprised to read of a, a little bit of a dated story now uh, from author, you might know him as an author, Max Lucado, but he was a senior minister at a church in Texas, a preacher um, at a, a Church of Christ there in Texas, and he was sitting front row one Sunday morning and getting ready to go up and preach. And right before the sermon was communion, uh, they serve in communion, he heard behind him a voice. And uh, it was really like a, a little boy's voice as communion was passed, peppering his dad with all kinds of questions. Like, Dad, Dad, what is, like, Dad why are they passing this bread? What is the bread all about? Then he heard the dad explain to the son. He said, this guy hit a home run. He explained to the son in the son's terms exactly what the bread was about. And it represented the, the body of Christ. And as a representation of the body of Christ that was given for us. And he, he, man, he just nailed it. Then the juice is passed. And sure enough, the boy's like, dad, what is the juice all about? And he said, for a second time, this dad hits a home run and explains to him, this represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It forgives our sins, buddy. And he's explaining all of this. He just thinks, I got to know who in my church is explaining this to their young kid so well. And he turns around and realizes as he turns, he can't just turn around. He has to look up because none other than David Robinson from the San Antonio Spurs was sitting right behind him with his little boy on his lap. He said the night before David Robinson was playing the Phoenix Suns, he's a Hall of Fame basketball player, very famous. Young people, Google him, all right? <laughs> uh, he, was, he, played, he was playing against the Phoenix Suns in the NBA playoffs the night before. And the very next day, he was to be in Phoenix playing against the Phoenix Suns again and sandwiched right in between these two playoff games, he made sure that he was at home, at church, with his son on his lap, explaining the significance of communion. I love that story because of the lack of ego, the lack of humility that's there. I mean, think about the world that he was living in. He stepped into a world that made it very easy to have a very big ego, very easy to think very much of yourself, very easy to focus on building a life of comfort, doing whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, and it would be okay. But yet here he is. He's sitting at home at church in between two playoff games telling his son all about communion. See, the world that he stepped into was challenging because it gave him everything he needed to build an ego and to build himself up. And that's the same type of world that the Corinthian Christians find themselves in living in this city called Corinth. And we've talked quite a bit about this city. It's a port city. It had a lot of people traveling in and out of the city of Corinth. Uh, people from all over the world. So you had multiple cultures and influences and traditions all coming together in this uh, big metropolis. Economically, it was thriving. I mean, this was the place you went if you wanted to be a part of a big, thriving city. And there it is at Corinth. The morality begins to plunge. It's, in fact, it gets so low that it becomes a culture where you could do what you want, when you want, how you want, and there was nothing to worry. I mean, it was the Las Vegas of the day times 10 times 10. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, that kind of a mentality. You could do whatever you wanted. And it was in this world that these Christians, this young church is birthed and they have to live in a culture. Think about it this way. You could see the ego in everything in Corinth, even their architecture. If you were to visit Corinth in Paul's day, you would walk down the streets, main street and every other street, and there would literally be columns, uh, these pillars that were built. 
And these pillars, you, I looked for a picture. You can't find pictures of them uh, the way that it would, it would be significant for us this morning. So let me describe it for you. These columns would line the streets. And on the column, the top of all the columns, you'd have a statue of a person of significance. Or it would be engraved into the side of the column. And then there would be this inscription that would detail for you the accomplishments of this person, who they were, where they were from, what they had achieved. And it's column after column, people that were dead and people that were still living. So if you're a young person, a young Christian, living in a culture, you'd be completely surrounded and inundated with everybody else's life achievements, everything they'd done, everything they'd uh, accomplished in their life. And two things would happen to you. One, you would think to yourself, I need to, no matter what in my life, I need to get to the place where I can have one of these statues representing me. I need to. And so it was an honor-shame culture. And one of the most important things to the Corinthian people was their reputation and their image, which meant you worked as hard as you could to build it up, and you protected it at all costs. You protected your reputation and your image no matter what it cost you. And now these Christians walking around, they see this, and they want, hey, i got to get a statue built to me describing my life accomplishments as well. Or you needed to make sure that you associated yourself with the right ones so that you could gain some influence. Think about it this way. That would be like somebody inventing an app today that you could have on your phone that constantly showed you pictures of other people's lives and their achievements. It'd be like an app where people could like these pictures, right? So you could build followers and influence. I mean, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? That if you were constantly every day inundated with the pictures of other people's lives, their achievements, and what they were doing. I mean, I think probably it would turn us into a status-obsessed, honor-shame, ego-building people ourselves, right? You're glad that hasn't happened, aren't you? That's good. This is the mentality that had weaved its way into the Corinthian church. This idea that, hey, I, I do want to follow Jesus, but I have to build my reputation, my image. And as a result, their ego would puff up. And so Paul has to address this because as their ego puffed up, what happens naturally when your ego gets bigger is you begin to compare yourself to other people. When comparison sets in, unity is nearly impossible because you're constantly. So now there's this division in the church. And Paul has to address it. It's what he's doing in the first four chapters. And so the unfortunate thing is, in, in your Bible, there are chapter and verse divisions. It's fortunate and unfortunate. Fortunate because uh, they're helpful in us memorizing Scripture and knowing where to go to in the Bible. Unfortunate because, I don't know if you knew that, but they weren't there when the Bible writers wrote the Bible. So like when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he didn't write that big four as he started chapter four. And here's why that's significant. Because every once in a while... When the people who were translating decided to break a chapter at a certain place, you're like, ah, oh, that's too bad because it builds so well on what was just said. It would be better if it just flowed. And this is one of those moments. The beginning of chapter 4 really fits in so well with what he said at the end of chapter 3. So for context, let's look at chapter 3, verse 18. It'll tell us a little bit about what Paul's starting to say before he really digs in. He says, don't deceive yourselves then. You live in this culture. Remember, picture, I want you to picture as I read this, walking the streets of Corinth with the columns and the pillars. Or picture holding your phone and scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. Okay? Don't deceive yourselves then. If any of you think that you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Why? Because living like a Christian in that day would have been viewed as being a fool. So he said, you need to lean more into your faith in Christ. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, because God's wisdom doesn't look like the streets that you're walking with the columns, with the statues, he says this, no more boasting about human leaders. Because all things are yours in Christ, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or death or the present or the future, all are yours and, all are, and you are in Christ and Christ is of God. 
So now he's going to begin to get a little bit more detailed with them. And he does so as you flip over to chapter 4. And he begins to teach them specifically about what he means when he says some of this. He says this. This then, so if we're no more boasting about human leaders, as we are leading you, let me tell you how you should think about us. You ought not to regard us that way. Instead, think of us as servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, they must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. This does not make me innocent, because it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. So Paul says, hey, instead of basing us on an honor-shame cult, just think of us as servants. Now, when Paul describes himself in your New Testament, he'll use multiple words. And oftentimes when the word is translated servant, he's using a word in that language that would have been translated like slave. I'm a slave of Christ. You've read that in your Bible, I'm sure. This time, though, he uses a unique word. He uses a different word that's not common, that he doesn't use very often. It's a similar word that's used of John Mark in our study of Acts last year uh, in relation to his work with Paul and Barnabas. It's a word translated assistant. So what he's saying is this. All I am is an assistant. I have one person who's given me a task. He's given me this job to do, and I have to be faithful to this job. That's my number one objective in life is I'm going to be faithful to the one who gave me a task. I have to do that. That's my, that's my number one requirement in life. So just think of me as a servant. So you shouldn't make much of me because I'm simply doing what I was told. You want to make much of someone, make much of the one who gave me the task. So stop elevating me. I don't need a pillar. I don't need a statue. I don't need an inscription. Make much of the one who sent me, not me, because I was simply sent to do a job. That's what he's saying. And he says because he understands that, that self-awareness, he's not so worried about their judgment of him or anyone else's judgment of him. It's not saying he doesn't care what everyone thinks all the time, but he is saying his number one objective is to please the Lord, not man. So when pleasing the Lord and pursuing God, if it upsets them, he's not going to cave to that simply because they're upset by it. He says, I'm not worried about you judging me or anyone else judging me. I only worry about one person's judgment. And it's the one who gave me this job to do with my life. And I want to prove faithful for my entire life to the one who gave me this task to do. He's not saying that we don't judge one another. That's not what he's saying. The Bible's clear. Christians should judge one another. We should see one another living and we should make judgments about it. He is saying, though, that the purpose of judgment is to make you aware of the one whose judgment matters most. We don't judge one another simply to point out someone's wrong. We're doing it to point people to Jesus. And Paul is saying, anything I do, it's just to point people to Jesus. So I don't worry about anything else if I'm faithful in fulfilling the task that he has called me to do. And in their culture, receiving praise was one of the highest honors that you could receive in the culture. And so Paul's telling them, be careful, guys, when people heap praise on you or insults towards you. Because their judgment's not the one you should be most concerned about. You should be leaning into your faith in Jesus because it's his opinion that matters the most of the way that you're living your life. It might look foolish to them and they'll judge you for it, but it, it's not foolish in his sight. He continues here talking about the, the temptation that they're surrounded with. He says, now, brothers and sisters, verse 6, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Meaning, why do you boast as though you earned something or that you deserve something? Have you ever noticed uh, that you don't notice your body unless there's something wrong with it? I don't know if you noticed this. Like, just think about it. Someone's going to tell me I did, but just bear with me. I don't know about you, but I wasn't during worship and, and during listening to the Haiti update earlier in the service. I, I wasn't sitting there thinking, man, my toes feel great today. Like, right? Like, I'm not, and I'm not like my pointer finger up here preaching just feels great. Like, oh, this is my point. It's on point, right? It, no, you don't think about that, right? Unless there's something wrong with it. If I had a broken toe, I very well may have been sitting back there thinking, man, something's wrong here. My, like, I'm feeling my toe standing up over here. We don't notice our body unless there's something wrong with it. Because body parts, by nature, they don't call attention to themselves unless there's something wrong. What Paul is saying here in, in verses, uh, these verses here, 6 and 7, is that your ego works the same way. He says your ego works the exact same way. When it's really healthy, and there's only one way to have a healthy ego, right, and that's in Christ, it doesn't draw attention to itself. But when it's not healthy, and because we live in a sinful world, because we still battle temptation, then the temptation is that our ego will draw attention to itself, right? It will. So living in the world, let me use this illustration for you. Let's just picture this balloon here is a healthy ego right now. It's healthy. Nothing. The temptation, though, is we walk down Main Street and we see the columns all around us. And they're telling us the type of life to build. We begin to think to ourselves, I've got to invest in that kind of a life. We begin to compare ourselves to other people. And all of a sudden, the temptation sets in and we... So now I've got to build this certain life that the culture is telling me I need to build. So I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to invest everything i got into making sure that I have enough money for me and for my family and for my, everybody else. And so then I've got to make sure that we look the right way so that I can post pictures and that people will enjoy looking at our family. And it just continues to grow. So I think it's fascinating when people will come and they'll say, hey, my, or even my kids sometimes, my feelings are hurt. And I'll say, no, your feelings seem to be working fine. Your feelings are working fine. It's not your feelings that hurt. It's that you've put so much into building a reputation or an image, and then somebody bumps into it. And all of a sudden, man, that hurt. That hurt. Right? They did this, and, and it's pointing out that you've been filling yourself with some hot air. And now all of a sudden, the ego draws attention to itself because you can feel it. And Paul's saying, this is what happens when you get puffed up. You begin to invest so much of your life into these things that, sure, they make you feel good in the moment until someone bumps up against it. And what's happening, if, if you'll allow it, the Lord is humbling. In a lot of circumstances, there are situations where you just get hurt, and I get it. But oftentimes when we, hey, your feelings are working the way they're supposed to be working, but your ego has been damaged. It's been bumped up against. And Paul's telling the Corinthian church, this is the problem that we have. What he's saying here to them is that your ego is the same exact way. Yeah, sure, you think your feelings are hurt, but really your ego has been hurt. And if you'll let it, if you'll let God empty that out, he'll fill you the way that you're supposed to be filled. You'll have a healthy ego that's not bumping into everything all the time. He's trying to tell them, watch your life. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, Mere Christianity. If you're not familiar with it, you should be. I, I recommend you get it. He has a very famous chapter in that book on pride, and he describes pride um, very similar to the way the Apostle Paul does here with the way the ego works. And he describes it this way, long quote, but bear with me. He says, what you, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only, have, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. 
If everyone else became equally rich, equally clever, or equally good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is, it is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. Lust may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but at least lust makes him want her. Pride drives a man to sleep with a beautiful woman just to prove that he can do it and to prove he can do it over the others. Pride destroys the ability to have any real pleasure from her. So he says the very nature of your ego is you build up this ego is that you're going to begin bumping into other people's egos and you're going to be comparing your life to other people, feeling that you need to do more and accomplish more in order to feel fulfilled, only to realize that your life is being filled with hot air that will never satisfy. It'll never bring you what you really need. It means that you're creating. So Paul here at the end, he says, so why do you boast about everything then? Why do you boast? Can you imagine? Just think about that verse. First service didn't get this, so bear with me. Can you just imagine? Why are you boasting? Think about how that settles in on our culture. Think about that. Online. Why are we boasting about everything in our online personas? Why are we? So he says, why are you boasting? Everything you have was given to you. You know, the word that he uses for boasting here, it literally means to recommend yourself. You're recommending you. So you are writing a self-esteem resume to the world, desperate for them to help fill your ego. He says, why are you doing that? It's just going to leave you empty, completely empty. So now he begins to contrast it. So you have that way of living. And he says, let's contrast that with the way that we're called to live. And he uses some sarcasm here in verses 8 through 13. He says this, already you Corinthians have what you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that you might, we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. We are, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Paul gives these two images here in this. Let me summarize the passage two ways. Two images to say, don't be uh, full of your ego. Instead, live this kind of life. The first one he gives is of the arena in verses 8 and 9. And he says, we apostles, we've been led out in the arena. If you've seen Gladiator, you get a good picture of this. They would have these all-day uh, entertaining moments for, for the people that would sit in the Colosseum and cheer. And there'd be all kinds of entertainment all day long. And then at the very end of the day, you would bring out the criminals, the low lives, the people that didn't deserve in an honor shame culture to be honored at all. Instead, we need to shame them. You would bring these criminals out and you'd bring them into the arena and they would do one of two things. They would have to fight gladiators that they were no match for. Or they would be fed to the lions running around for the entertainment of the people. And the apostle Paul says, when it comes to comparing the way we're called to live to what the world says we should live, that's what we're like. That's what we look like. We look like we've been led out into the arena because the rest of the world can't understand why we would serve other people over and above our own comfort. Why we would sacrifice ourselves for the betterment of other people. They don't understand it. It's just, look at these, they're the scum of the earth. He says, not you, Corinthians. No, you're living rich. You're living good. Theologically, Paul has this idea in mind when he's talking about this. It's called the already, not yet. And what he means is this. If you're a Christian, you're living in the already. Jesus has already come, and you live with the benefits of him having him have come the first time. 
but he's not yet returned for the final coming. So we're not in heaven and we're not at the banquet table and we don't have all the comfort that we need. We still live in the already, but not yet in the in-between where there is struggling. And Paul is saying, that's what we're called to do is live in the already, not yet, but not you guys. You've built a life of comfort. You sit around the banquet table already, don't you? You're not serving. You're not giving of yourself to other people. You've done it all to the Corinthians. The second image he gives is what I would call the kitchen. When he says we're the scum of the earth, the garbage of this world, those are two words that he uses that are translated to wipe off or to sweep up. And what he's saying is we're just the crumbs at the table that you've set. Again, another image. He's not saying that as Christians we should go and pursue suffering. Like, I'm a Christian, help me suffer. Like, you don't, like many people actually do that. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this the way that you view your mission in life, your purpose in this life matters greatly to God and will either lead you down a track of wisdom or foolishness. What he is saying is we are not to pursue pleasure and comfort and money and power and influence. That's not, we're not. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to serve. We are to be here to serve a world who has filled their egos and are suffering in pain because they need the gospel. That's what we're called to do with our lives. That's what we're called to give to our lives. Now, when you understand this and you read other parts of Scripture, it brings it to life. And I hope it does. I'm excited. All right. Because I'm, I'm reading this. I'm thinking, man, this makes so much even more clarity to what Paul would write to another Roman colony called Philippi. When he wrote a letter to them, they're very similar to Corinth in that they were an, a Roman colony that writes and privileges all the things necessary to have a really big inflated ego. And Paul, when he's writing to them, he writes these words in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And here's where he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned in a world that tells me to go in a thousand different directions to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself in. I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things for Christ, through Christ who gives me strength. The most misquoted verse in our New Testament. This doesn't belong on a coffee mug. You understand? Philippians 4.13 tells us that I can suffer. Not I can have accomplishments and comfort and successes. He says I can go through suffering and pain and difficulty because of the one who gives me my strength. James K. Smith is a scholar, and he, he said it this way. He says, if that's the case, then Christian worship, in essence, is counterformational to the rival liturgies, which are just practices, that we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly, they covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. When we come to worship on a Sunday morning, it is about coming out of the world that says build a big ego and it's realigning your heart with the heart of God so that you're protected from the world that's telling you to build yourself up. Let me close this way. The best illustration of the Bible is the Bible, okay? And so I labored over how to give you practical things to take with you. I wanted to give you, here's three things you can do to go and make sure you don't have an ego, but I can't. So I'm gonna give you the best thing I can and it comes straight from scripture. The writer of Hebrews gives us a summary of this so perfectly. In chapter 12, he says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Notice, though, that he's not saying, let us look to the cloud of witnesses, make much of them, and celebrate them. It's just like what Paul said. Don't celebrate 
other leaders. That's what he says. And let us then run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So he's saying, you have a race that God gave you. And this great cloud of witnesses is not going to come and run that race for you. There is no substitute for your spiritual growth. You have to run the race that God has put before you. And then he tells us exactly how to do it. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? For the joy set before him endured suffering. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's what I love about this. You know the word that he uses for perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith? It's the Greek word archegos. Literally, ark, ego. Let Jesus be the chief ego in your life. Let him be the source and the fulfillment of your ego. He's your arch ego. That word used in Greek literature would describe a champion. So you got to picture some hostages that were helpless. They couldn't get any of the help that they needed. Okay, They were completely helpless. And they were about to be attacked by an enemy. And an archegos, a warrior, a hero, a champion, would come in and he would defend them in one of two different ways. Setting them free. He would absorb what the enemy was shooting their way, oftentimes arrows. And so think Hercules. Hercules shows up as an archegos, and he takes on, and they shoot him with arrows, and they're not working. The second way he would do it is he would challenge them to what would be called like a mortal combat. And he would go to war with the enemy and overcome and defeat them, freeing the captives, com- completely freeing them to go and live. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's what Jesus did for you. He's your archegos. He's the only one you should boast about. He's the only one that you should brag about. Because left to yourself, you did nothing. But because of him, you have everything that you need to live in this world. He's the champion. He's the author. He's the perfecter. And so why would we brag about anything else that we experience in life? It should all be about him. And so you want to run the race that God has called you to run? The only thing that I could tell you is fix your eyes on Jesus. And let him be your archegos, your archego, your champion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning and the reminder that you are our champion. What we were powerless to overcome, you overcame. What we cannot do in our own strength, you provide for us. Father, we live in a world that feels a lot like Corinth. We are inundated with the images, the achievements, the successes of the people that are around us. And it can be a real temptation for us to focus in on our own reputation, our own image. So we need you, Father. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to remind us what your word says. We don't need a reputation. We don't need an image. We don't need power and influence because we have all we need in our champion, Jesus. So, Father, would you remind us as we partake of communion in a few moments and as we continue to worship, you really are our champion. And we ask you for this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.